0: It's Yona Bud. I've been working with young people and adults for more than 40 years, helping them to live their best life. Now on this podcast, I do it for you too. That's why we call it At Your Best, so I can help you become your best self each week. So let's explore stories from all across Canada and celebrate how strong we really are, even when we feel at our weakest. We're making great strides as a people, but that doesn't mean we don't still need to learn and grow. I speak with James Petrovic about why he's created a support group for people who identify as asexual and aromantic. Does that exactly mean? And a new study has found that methamphetamine related ER visits are skyrocketing in most provinces. I speak with the lead of the study, Dr. James Crispo, and his colleague, Dr. Paxton Falk, who helped break down why this seems to be stemming from the West Coast and why it's so problematic for ER rooms. So sit back, relax, and get ready to listen to ways we can help you be at your best. Talking about daylight savings time. So it goes like this I've had a really funky week. Okay. Um, And I was trying to figure out, you know, kind of halfway through the week while I was a little off. Right. So I have my own diagnoses, as you may know, if you've heard from me before, I have OCD, ADD and anxiety disorder. So typically those kinds of things stay in check when I do all the right things and eat well, sleep well, get some exercise, move around, talk to strangers, talk to friendly people, talk to my family, all that kind of stuff. But I found this week a much tougher time kind of pulling it all together. And then I was sitting with my uh, my youngest son and we were chatting and I said, you know what? I just realized something. I bet you this daylight savings time stuff really has a negative impact on people's mental health. And now I start to I look back and, and listen to the conversation, play back in my mind the conversations I've had with you know patients and those looking to become patients uh, of our practice. And um, we have a pro- program called Recover in Home. And uh, we help people get well in the comforts of their home and uh, still you know, managing to go to work and go to school or whatever that is. Anyway, without getting into that, that's not a commercial. But tons of people calling, and when we talk, we start. People are saying, you know, I've had a particularly difficult week, and I was like, you know, man, like me too, and um, and we kind of share. And it so it dawned on me that daylight savings time really does have an impact, or clocks changing them one way or another, because I'm pretty much a have, you know, a, a creature of habit. I, I, you know, the OCD in me makes it really easy to conform to scheduling and I kind of eat the same stuff and, you know, get up at the same time, go to bed around the same time typically. Um, so, you know, I, I keep myself in check by doing all that stuff, but you can't beat this daylight saving time stuff, according to the experts. So adjusting the clocks twice a year in observance of daylight saving time can have various health consequences, mostly in the spring, due to losing an hour of sleep. However, the fall shift back to standard time may increase depression and after uh, affect your mental health. And this comes from uh, one of these uh, better minds, better health kind of uh, websites. Seems to be more depression, anxiety, and even suicidal thoughts around the time clock. Okay. So bottom line is I, I realized that, you know, uh, um, I am feeling it and clearly based on the You know, discussions and conversations I had had one guy call me and say, you know what, you know, I've been doing all the right stuff and um, I just can't seem to shake it. Like I say, shake what? He says, yeah, this kind of this mood that I can't get out of bed or get out of bed. but I really don't want to. And i you know, not really feeling, you know, that that kind of motivated. I said like a funk, right? He says, "Yeah." I said, "Well, you know, I'm in it too." And and we and we so we talked about it. We talked about kind of reschedule, you know, readjusting, and perhaps having a nap, um, you know, if throughout the day or or if there's an opportunity to close your eyes for 20 minutes during lunch break, just to kind of reset yourself a little bit. That was kind of my suggestion. Not everybody can do that, Um, but I do have some information about what we can do. And I wish I perhaps I should have looked all this stuff up ahead of time. So I wouldn't have had such an uncomfortable week. I mean, don't get me wrong. It wasn't like, you know, I was, you know, I didn't want to go to work or anything like that, but I definitely felt off. I definitely didn't feel like my normal self in sync with my, you know, just in sync, just didn't feel kind of, I don't even know how to explain it. Probably just didn't feel myself. It just didn't I felt a little off. Maybe I thought maybe I was getting a, getting some kind of bug or something or whatever. Lots of people around these days with a cold, easy to catch. Um, So, but it's not that. It's this whole, you know, shifting of the clocks which is like a real pain for me because I have different watches and have clocks, you know, battery operated clocks around my place. And, you know, it just, you know, shifting things. I, I had a schedule set for my television to turn it on at a specific time, but I forgot that the TV clock is a different clock than the rest of the clock. So it came on an hour later <clears throat> after I cursed it and sort of, you know, figured what, it, what, what did I do wrong, so to speak. Right. <clears throat> so I'm trying to get to, trying to get to that place where we understand how to fix it, right? So what, this, what the experts suggest are spend your mornings outside. So basically, if you're able to get outside um, when, the, when the sunlight comes up uh, as early as you can, try to get outside and kind of get into that daylight feeling, right? Um, now, depending on as the days get longer, it's going to be easier and easier to do that. They also suggest if you're not able to do that, you're not able to wake up that early, uh, you might want to buy something called a light box. Uh, It's something called, we've talked about it here on the show before. It's called light therapy. Uh, It basically just gives you the, the, um, the the juice you need from the sun, so to speak that, that, you know, bump from the sun uh, with, with a certain type of light. Not all lights are the same, Um, And that's the common treatment, by the way, for someone who has uh, seasonal effect disorder, someone who has a difficult time more in the winter than in the summer because of lack of daylight and lack of sunlight and all that stuff. It's a real thing. It does absolutely affect uh, your brain. There are absolute, you know, it does really affect your brain, according to the experts. uh, The time change disrupts um, uh, circadian rhythms, also known as the body's essential functions. And it runs on a 24-hour cycle, right? Uh, but these circadian rhythms—they—if they can actually disrupt your mental health in terms of, um, like, even a chemical—it's not so much a chemical thing, but definitely adjusts people. It affects people that have, you know, anxiety disorder, or other forms of disorders. Uh, this really exasperates it. So it's a real thing, right? Stay physically active. It's a thing we suggest to everybody for almost everything right so when you're not feeling your best get some kind of stretch going if you don't feel like working out cuz i get that too right you just don't feel like working out when you're in a in a place of not feeling great so just get some physical exercise maybe get some stretching i mean i just i you know i just felt it odd i was just i just felt you know i knew for the first day cuz i'm always affected for the first day that you know i was going to be a little more tired i you know, i lost an hour so to speak um and so i kind of you know adjusted my schedule a little bit but then this kind of carried on. And, and I felt that I wasn't able to catch up, so to speak. And, and what I didn't want to do is I didn't want to kind of reset myself and mess myself up when I got back on track. So I don't know. It, it was a difficult situation to kind of just sort through in my own head. Um, of course, doing all my breathing exercises and being mindful and so on, you know, helps a lot. But if you were out there, let me know. Give us a call. 877-399-9898 let Leo know we'll get you on in a little bit and we can uh, we can chat about it if not we're going to talk about this a little bit more towards the end of the show as well so love to hear from you tonight 877-399-9898 give us a shout give us a text let us know you're out there saying hi uh, but now you know the week is over get back into that place get yourself reorganized this weekend catch up where you need to get yourself you know back on track with the new clock so to speak right I know I say, so to speak, too much tonight. I have to change that. (laughs) It's one of those things I'm going to write down to make myself better. Yeah, man. Anyway, I'm happy to be here with you all, though. That's for sure. It makes a big difference for me. And uh, nice to know that there's other people out there that maybe deal with the same kind of stuff that I do, that you do. Um, So, you know, I'm, I'm now recognizing that there's usually a good answer. For things that are going on, specifically, you know, I'm thinking about myself, a good answer for why things kind of just feel off or different. Now, if I go through that whole checklist, right, what we've talked about before, you know, hungry, angry, lonely, tired, it's called HALT. Um, you know, I look at, see if I'm hungry, if I'm angry, lonely, tired, but the, um, the, the you know, the seasonal effect disorder stuff that really has an impact on lots of people, uh, for those of us that aren't really affected by that all the time, certainly when you mess with the clocks, it messes with your internal clock. Uh, and that's kind of like my TV, right? I have to I change the clock in my TV in order for it to turn on right at the right time because it doesn't know uh, what clocks I'm living by. It's not wearing my watch, right? You know, I, I, I deal with a lot of um, young people, kind of 13 to 20 in my private practice. And, um, I, I you know, over the years, I found it a little more difficult to connect um, in various areas of their life, uh, primarily around the, um, you know, their their attachment to social media and, so, and gaming, something I needed to learn a lot more about um, along that same line. Um, I must say that I struggle with the understanding of what is behind the lives of people in the LGBTQIAP plus um, world. Um, and this is a story that I wanted to share. Not so much a story. This is a subject I wanted to to bring out and share because I myself are, are trying to better understand um, what types of sexual orientations and choices and, 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 and um, identities are out there so that I can you know, do my job better and be a, a more understanding uh, therapist and be a, a more uh, understanding person uh, in general as it relates to the choices that some people make. And um, you know the, the interesting thing uh, about this is that um, not a lot of people understand the concept of not having a sexual attraction or not having a romantic attraction in their relationships. Um, Listen here for a minute. This is David J. He's an American uh, asexual advocate and he speaks to a crowd of people of what asexual means and that just because someone's asexual doesn't mean the person doesn't strive for meaningful human connection. Have a listen.
1: And asexual person is someone who does not experience sexual attraction. So, if you think about it, there's some people who really like sex a lot. There's other people who like sex, but not quite as much. It makes sense that at the bottom of the spectrum, there would be people who aren't interested in sexuality at all. And the important thing to understand about our community is that we have the same desire for connection as everyone else. We just don't have a desire to express
2: that connection sexually.
0: Join me uh, in welcoming my guest, James Petrovich. Uh, James Petrovich, excuse me. He he started something called Toronto Aspects uh, Instagram page, and they also have a Twitter page. Uh, James, welcome to the show.
3: Hi, Yona. How are you?
0: Great. Thanks so much for being here. Um, I, I, I'm so excited to to share with you tonight because I, I have so many questions and I'm sure my listeners will as well. Uh, but first of all, I want everyone to understand that we are profiling you as a person at their best because James uh, couldn't find I guess you couldn't find the community you were looking for to tie yourself into, to be part of, and to you know have meaningful um, dialogue and, and, and relationships with to to you know to to I guess expand your own life and make yourself even you know sort of uh, you know understand where you are and where other people are. I I, it's, I think it's just great, and the fact that you took it upon yourself to put something together. So kudos to you, man. I'm um, I'm really proud of you for that. Um, tell me, what what does this mean? What does aspect? actually mean can you break it down for us
3: that's a good question because actually it's pronounced a spec instead of aspec. but oh, sorry writing wise no worries no worries. but a spec basically means someone who is either on the asexual which means little to no romantic uh sorry little to no sexual attraction or on the aromantic spectrum which is little to no romantic attraction so some people may be both some people may just be one or the other but just in general um a spec is just an umbrella term.
0: So um, what exactly is the difference between someone who's asexual and aromantic? One of the biggest factor, factors is
3: that aromantic is literally just um, little to no romantic attraction. They could feel they have libido, they can be high libido, or just experience sexual attraction. While asexual experience little to no sexual attraction, but can still have or want romantic relationships. It's like the same side of the coin, but just a bit different.
0: So... Um... Okay, let, me, let me let me try to understand this so the so so let's take this is a world that you live in, correct right this is yeah, I'm both
3: aromantic and asexual.
0: So um, the typical thing that we you know certainly I grew up with a million years ago was you know you found somebody you, you know you, you you waited for a meaningful relationship you then had sex you then carried on with the, the you know romance and then sex and so on um, where like those those sort of old stayed, Thought processes um, today, the connection between two people when you rem- when you remove the sexuality or the romance, um, where does the con- where do the deeper connections take place?
3: It's honestly all about the emotions of how I connect with others and just how I feel around other people. For example, I have my friend Joy. I love her she is honestly one of the most important people in my lives. And some people may view our relationship as romantic as we do things that normal um, couples do, like hold hands and cuddles, go on dates, all that kind of stuff. But for me, our connection, I would say is that the same relationship as people who do have boyfriends or partners, because just the way I feel about her and, and how I know she feels about me is just, It's just so heartwarming and it's just, I can't explain it. It's just something so nice. I know that this is someone I'm safe with. This person is safe with me and I just love her. And again, I use the word love and some people may just see that as something romantic, but it's 100% just platonic love. I care for her deeply
0: yeah I can certainly uh, relate I'm certainly certainly other people out there can as well uh, relate to the the fact that you can still be close and love someone without the romance and and you know the sexuality I have a, a ton of platonic friends that I'm close to that way and you know um, so I'm gonna ask a question so hugging like hugging kisses on the cheek that kind of stuff considered sexual not considered sexual kind of help me out there
3: Alright, no worries. For me, I think nothing is inherently sexual or romantic. It's only sexual or romantic if the people involved interpret it that way. Like, for example, uh, if like a mother kisses their kid on the cheek, like, no one, no one say anything like, oh my god, like, you're, this is not right. This is too sexual. It's that since both of these people know that, okay, I care for you, you care for me, this is nothing more than just platonic love between like a mother and kid. And that goes like yes. the same thing as like me kissing my friends.
0: So is this something that, uh, that, you know, you sort of wake up one day and realize I'm, I'm, I'm involved in a relationship and I'm not feeling something or is this something like, it's just growing up. Give me an idea growing up. This is this a a, a, a place that you found yourself um, always, or as a result of, you know, trial and error, like, give me an idea sort of how one wakes up and realizes, you know what? I, I don't have a, a sexual connection to, you know, I don't see the world that way. uh, I certainly don't see the people in my life that way. And I don't, you know, feel that kind of romantic connection. Is it, was there a time at which you, we're involved in relationships where those "quote unquote" you know standard norms, if you will. I'm sure it's the, the wrong way to pronounce it to, to, to portray it, but you know what I'm saying. Like, is it kind of something you woke up? Like, I have a lot of friends that found themselves, you know, not found themselves gay, just realized after having several, you know, heterosexual relationships that yeah, it's not really what they're into, and they're really into, you know, uh, you know, either men or women, right? Uh, in this particular case. But so, is it something you just kind of identify, wake up one day?
3: I mean, I already knew it since I was a kid. Like as a kid, I was like, "Oh, I'm not really a touchy person. Like I hate, I hate hugs. Like, uh-huh. just all that kind of intimate. And I knew and just never wanted kids. Like I never wanted all that kind of stuff. But what really solidified this idea in my head is when I, when I was in high school and I had this friend who like I jokingly flirted with. And then my, and then I eventually, um, it was suggested that I go out with this with my friend we ended up dating for two years, but throughout the relationship and just in general, I, never really felt the romantic or I guess like the sexual feelings. But if you see us in the hallway, you know, we're like holding hands, you know, kissing, like saying that I love you. But for me, it, it always felt like I had to do it because, because that was just how things go. You know, you, you grow up, you go to school, you're like, Oh, you find someone. And then from there, you know, you'd be like, Oh my God, I love you and all that kind of stuff.
0: We're talking, joined back, uh, joined this evening with um, uh, James Petrovich, Petrovich, and he is um, going, you know, we're talking about his ASPEC's Twitter page and Instagram page, talking about being on the ASPEC spectrum, so to speak. Uh, Welcome back, James. Thanks for being here. people don't understand certain terms and, and, you know, people use all we're, we're, we're terms like demisexual and, uh, pan, pansexual and aromantic and heteromantic and panromantic. These are terms that are, you know, seem to be, uh, actively used in the, um, in the world out there understanding the LGBTQ IAP plus world. Um, but for many people, it, it, I guess the big struggle for you and what you do is helping people understand. Is that the reason you started your support group?
3: My support group was actually meant for people who are in the A spec. I know for myself, it's very hard to feel like you belong if because society in general is like heavily sexualized. Like if you just go on any commercial. It's like, oh, here's a new car. It's very sexy. And you just start feeling out of place, just very uncomfortable. So I created a Toronto A Specs to just make a safe place where A Spec folks can just come talk, relax, and just don't have to worry about the small societal pressure, just being sexual and just being romantic.
0: I love that societal pressure because... Typically, like if you and I were to meet over a cup of coffee, I know mean, we you, you do some work for the same people. I do some work for. If we were to be able to meet downtown at the office, let's say one day and have a cup of coffee, I, I'm not sure that we would be engaged in the conversation where I would have any any idea about your uh, your sexual preferences, your or your thoughts on romance. Um, so. Typically, how do people kind of find themselves that way to identify? Like, how do you suddenly sort of connect to somebody and go, hey, you know, I'm I'm not into this and I'm not into this either. And you suddenly have a connection. Is it just, you know, kind of um, uh, something that happens just by happenstance or kind of tell me how that connection starts?
3: I know for me at first with just venting to a few friends, and of course, some of them just wouldn't understand where I'm coming from, which is very reasonable because they experience sexual romantic attraction while I don't. And eventually I found, oh, hey two of my friends are actually a spec as well. And from there I just started posting online, you know, posting posters like downtown and just in areas where I know there'd be a few bustling people. And from there, I know some people from the U S some people in Waterloo have just came and be like, Hey, can I join? And of course we're open to anyone on the spec to come and join. So we know just how hard it is just to define this community.
0: Amazing. Um, Do you think, it's a personal question, I'm I'm asking you your personal opinion, do you think that it makes the um, relationships in your life more or less complicated um, when you take sort of the romantic and sexual piece out of the equation, Um, in terms of obviously for you, but you know, just in terms of your other friends that you talk to and you hear their stories about this situation and that situation, do you sort of almost sigh and say, you know what, I don't have that in my life, it kind of makes my life easier? Um, I can't
3: really say, but I know, like, I know for me, when I go out, like, you know, clubbing with my friends or just talking to my friends, like just catching up, one of the things that always gets spring up is like, oh my God, this person is so hot. I'm like, ooh, look at this person I'm chatting with. And it can get over time, it can get a bit annoying because it goes with the internalized doubt. You're like, oh, how come I can't feel this way that everyone else feels? And if it's so great and if everyone wants it, except for me, what's wrong with me that uh, I can't experience these, these feelings and things.
0: Wonderful. I'm glad you brought that up. And, and obviously now you found comfort in your own skin as it relates to this kind of stuff, because, I've, you know, there's tons of other people, I'm sure. Like how, like how many would you, would you say, like how many people out there are on the A-spec spectrum? Um, let's say in Ontario, if that's a, a good measure.
3: I feel like there's a lot more people on the A-spec than, We know in general, because just in general, people who are aromantic and asexual, I think are more or less 1% of the population because of how we grow up, where it's like, oh, we only hold hands we only kiss people who mean a lot to us, but they can only be if they mean a lot to us in a sexual romantic way. And that it's only one way of viewing things. And I feel like we just take that out of the equation where it's like, you can take your, I take my friends out on dates. And again, I said, I cuddle, I hold my friend's hands. If we just find a way to make, to just show our emotions without labeling it as romantic or sexual inherently, I feel like that can just open up and just people can figure new stuff out um, new stuff about themselves and what they like.
0: Yeah. I think that's a, I think that's great. Just, you know, just, I, I think the, the idea of being able to normalize how a person feels in relation to another community, I think, makes it a lot easier for people to fit in, right? Um, give me an idea how this, how you created this group, and, and um, are there other supports out there like this for people that are on the uh, ASPEC spectrum?
3: I know for me, I originally tried to go to queer support groups, but I find that a lot of them is either about gender or sexuality and in my case I am part it is sexuality but it's more the lack of sexuality or the lack of um, sexual attraction so when I try to just event or just talk about my situations people just really wouldn't just understand it and if I'm going to a queer support group and I don't feel like I'm included then I'm more or less like okay I have to start my own thing and I started this in December and of currently right now we have around 70 members in our discord
0: so it's going pretty good <laughs> that's amazing so tell us a little bit about the organization it's called toronto aspex and it's on instagram and on twitter um what do you got you know what do you what are you folks up to like what uh, what do you do are there are there gatherings you get together do you eat together do you, you party together how does that all work
3: Currently, we have multiple social medias, like you said before, Instagram, Twitter, and we also have a Tumblr and Facebook account, just trying to reach as many people as possible. And for what we're trying to do is twice, um, um yeah, twice a month we have two events. One event where we discuss ASPEC topics. I know last week we talked about the history of ASPEC. And this week, sorry, this month again, we're going to be having a board game event on the 25th. That's going to be really fun and very exciting. But we also have two online events for people who just can't come or just not in Toronto, where it's just fun online events like gaming or movies. And then we also have another discussion event for, again, people who just can't come or just miss the event.
0: So I think a, the, the, term, um, what are we talking about? We're ter- the term a spec, uh, according to the, uh, it was considered a disorder. Asexuality was considered a disorder until 2013. Uh, and it's been removed as a disorder since then, which I, I think is, is probably something you would find positive. I would find it positive. Um, are there still a ton of stigmas attached?
3: Of course there's a, a huge amount of stigmas. It's funny. It, two months ago i believe we had a discussion talking about neurodivergency disability and how it relates to A-spec-ness. and a lot, there is a bit of a controversial how some aspec people are like no this is not a disorder this is just who we are but people with disorders Kind of take offense, but that's a, another huge can of worms. But going back to the original thing, yeah, people who are asexually aromantic are believed to just be stone cold hearted in media's only characters who are quote unquote ace, which ace is ace headcanon, are just people who just don't feel emotions whatsoever. It's just blank robots, aliens, or just supernatural creatures.
0: You get a lot of questions about this. Do you ever get tired of talking about it?
3: For me, this is something I'm really passionate in, hence why I created Toronto a But I do know sometimes it can get a bit much, especially when I'm just like out and I just happen to strike up this conversation with a friend and it's like, oh, I kind of wanted just to grab a lunch and not spend so much like mental energy on this. But just in general, I love just talking about it, educating people, because the more people who are aware, the more that asexuality and aromanticism is solidified.
0: I'm talking to James uh, Petrovich and uh, certainly somebody at their best. A-Specs uh, is, uh, we're talking about A-Spec uh, community, and there's one on uh, Instagram, one on um, on Facebook. I think there's a Facebook uh, uh, place, uh, excuse me, Facebook page as well. Anyway, um, something you should look into. I think the really interesting stuff. Nice to be understanding of the world around us, and um They do seem to do an excellent job of making other people comfortable in situations where perhaps it's not easy to find common thinkers, right? We're getting into a segment here about AI therapists artificial intelligence therapists so we just thought a little Roboto may get you in the right frame of mind and going back just to my previous guest James uh, Petrovich um, he runs an organization called a specs uh, Toronto a specs and uh, uh, you can see them on Instagram Twitter he's got some other stuff going on so uh, yeah really pay attention to what they're doing so a lot of people uh, getting together to make each other feel like a community and I just love it I just love it that people can find a place to fit. Everyone needs a place to fit. For every nut there's a squirrel, they say, right? Anyway, let's get to the story at hand. AI therapy. So imagine calling or getting involved with an interaction online with a therapist and they pop up and they kind of look a little off because they're actually a bot. They're not a bot. What do they call They're they're some form of... uh, um, you know, uh, art like cartoon character, if you will, in terms of um, you know they're they're not they're not real people, they're fake, but they look amazing. They look like the real deal. These artificial intelligence bots, these these the folks that come on these art, you know, these cartoon characters, they're really quite amazing. Um, and for a lot of people, uh, this kind of interaction makes their life easy because on the other side, there's no one really judging them as they feel they might be getting judged. Um, I'll tell you, there's a a lot of stories about people who are using these. There's a story of a particular woman who's a Muslim woman, and she felt that artificial intelligence, um, this particular uh, AI program that she was using, uh, worked very well for her uh, because it, you know, it it was able to take from her some of her thoughts and thinking and put it into something where, you know, it didn't make her feel uncomfortable or she was being judged for what she was wearing, whether that's real or not. Right. It doesn't really matter. Uh, but the fact is that there, the opportunity to talk with a, uh, a robot basically is what we're talking about. Right. Um, that it, eventually talk, you know, you realize that you're talking to a robot, but you're getting good feedback. And when you're in need of some form of mental health care, it's imperative that someone is there to listen. Does that someone have to be real? Does that someone have to be a real human being? Or can that someone be a bot of sorts that's got the artificial intelligence to give you the answers that you're looking for? Now, I'm not talking about someone doing this to necessarily get a diagnosis. I don't think that that's what that's what it's about. But in terms of getting you know some information, sharing some information back, answering questions, there seems to be a real benefit. Uh, there's something called the Mind Easy app. The one that we use in my practice is called Replica. Um, and for like 13 bucks a month, you can you know get online with this with this app, and it will talk to you 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And as, over time, will understand you a lot more. Um, then obviously the first time you use it. But, you know, eventually you can communicate with this um, this um, artificial intelligence uh, interaction in a way that gives you relief. Good thing or bad thing? I don't know. 877 Give us a call. Tell me what you think. I, I think that has a lot of benefits, right? It has a lot of benefits. Sometimes it's just important that somebody listens, that somebody's there, right? That somebody actually understands you. Yeah, it might be an avatar, right, which is what these little characters are called. It might be an avatar, but someone's listening. You know, sometimes on the phone, you know, when when we take crisis calls back in the day for sure, that, you know, you take a call from someone and, and you don't say much. You just do a lot of listening. You know, in the world of therapy, the listening piece is a big part of it. It's probably the biggest part of it. In terms of being able to provide feedback, you know, it's also very good too, right? Based on the experience that you have and your ability to provide good, you know, honest ther- honest feedback. But according to Dahlia Ahmed, she's one of the founders, founders, excuse me, of this app called Mind Easy. And she's also a psychotherapist. Uh, she says the app is not there to diagnose or provide traditional talk therapy, but instead to focus on preventative measures to boost one's mental health. Our mission, she says, is really to be able to create space for proactive and preventative mental health, because right now it's a super, it's super binary, you either have a diagnosis or you're waiting till crisis, for some crisis and some type of crisis intervention, they go on to tell the interviewer, Uh, MindEasy was reminding her to check, Uh, MindEasy will remind uh, patients to check and complete certain exercises, it'll prompt them to start their day, ask them the right questions, give them motivational information and instruction, and you know what, I think that's pretty cool. Uh, we're using it now, uh, in our practice uh, for certain patients, not all patients, but we have certain patients that require instant, uh, instant, uh, response. Uh, it, it's part of their disorder. They require instant responses. So we, we, we have them tied into uh, this replica, uh, application, this replica program that we use. It's not ours. It's, uh, out there and, you know, it gives them comfort for the times <clears throat> that a therapist isn't available. Now we provide 24 seven care, but you know, not, we don't always have a therapist standing by that can talk to somebody when they're in need and they might be feeling very anxious and they might need to connect to somebody who can just listen to why they're feeling anxious. And we're testing it of course, to see if this is in fact uh, beneficial and, and the, you know, the real differences that it makes so far, <clears throat> excuse me, the half a dozen people that we have using it seem to love it. Uh, it's available for them when they need it. And uh you know, it's, it, it's getting them some form of comfort. And it's really the comfort that we're talking about. That's what it's all about. So, they, you know, they're incorporating AI into avatars and chatbots. And, you know, over time, it's going to get more and more and more effective. Uh, I guess the more information, I'm not a technical guy, but I guess the more information the, the app uh, gets to understand about you, learns about you, the more information it's able to feed back to you. Uh, but um, I, I just think that there's a place for technology in the world of mental health care. You know, I, I'll tell you, w- before the pandemic, um, I was very much a hands-on, touchy-feely kind of guy. You know, I like to hug my patients when I meet them. Um, I, I like the physical interaction. I get, a, I feel a connection. I, I think I'm able to do, I thought, I thought, in those days anyway, able to do much better work. And then the pandemic hit, and I wasn't able to see people physically. So we started seeing people virtually, and that blossomed into a a practice with you know uh, thirty odd therapists and and seeing lots and lots of people, and it's it's making a difference because people can see us at, at at a time and a place that's convenient to them virtually. So at home, I see a lot of people in the in their, in the car, in their parking lot during lunch hours. CP, I, I do sessions with people on the go train sometimes. So that you know that is an introduction of technology, as I see it, right? I see an introduction of technology into the world of virtual healthcare. And highly effective. I don't know if you've heard me say this before, but our program is eighty percent success. Uh, successful eighty percent of eighty percent success means uh, living comfortably in your own skin, good solid mental health, and no substance use or abuse for a period of a year or longer. Uh, we have some patients now thirty months or longer. So it's very effective inpatient care, which is another business that we have, another service that we provide called the Farm in Stouffville, 50% success rate, trying to improve that as well over time. But it seems to be more effective when people can see you when it's comfortable for them, still be in their own life, sleeping in their own bed, so to speak, and having the ability to use what you give them tomorrow actually living in the real world and using the technology tomorrow, using the stuff they've learned, excuse me, using the, the virtual technology, the stuff they learned today, they're able to use tomorrow. Never thought that would have been the case. You would have had me kicking and screaming if you would have said, let's go virtual. So now the advent of going virtual with the, the increase or the addition, excuse me, of using um, other forms of technology, artificial intelligence in this case, just seems to make sense to me. If it's the right stuff, as long as we're not providing bad information, and that's what you want to be careful of—you want to not provide bad information. So, as long as the program is sound and it's it's bare, it's taking its information from good studies, from good research, from good uh, you know history, good practice history, then I think it has a really good place in, in in the future and helps people get past that having to wait forever and ever and ever just to have someone listen to what they have to say and to say, you know what it's going to be okay. That's worth a lot. And if that bot or that avatar says that, and I believe it, and it's something, and it, it, it's, it, it means something to me, and I can find hope in it, then it's a successful application of technology. I've seen it work in real life. I think this is the way of the future, but hopefully I'll still have a job for a while longer to come. we're talking right now about meth methamphetamine related er visits on the rise in ontario and following western canada trend uh and the issue is that methamphetamine uh and um other drugs are killing people on the street and we're you know dealing with a, a big issue with the number of people attending er with methamphetamine related psychosis so there is something called amphetamine related psychosis it's pretty difficult to treat on the fly. People are very difficult to get people into a frame of mind where you can af- positively affect them in order to get the treatment that they need. Um, I want you to listen to a clip here from a nurse in Manitoba who remains uh, nameless. Um, and she's talking about um, how, how it feels to be um, treating somebody when they're in that situation. Have a quick listen.
3: They can be very anxious, very paranoid, and um, very
0: volatile. So we're uh, joined this evening by Dr. James Crispo and Dr. Paxton Bach. Uh, They're the uh, lead uh, authors uh, related to the study that talks about the meth-related ER visits uh, on an incline, an increase, if you will, in Canada right now. Uh, Gentlemen, thank you so much for being uh, with us this evening. Uh, It's pretty scary stuff, right? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, you guys there? Yes. Yeah, Hi you all it's uh, James Crispo. Hey James, thanks you for being with us. Uh, Dr. Crispo, the stuff that we're talking about here in terms of the you know we've been talking about opioids and opioids and opioids forever and ever. Um, Methamphetamine has been on the street a long time. Uh, you and I both know, certainly in my practice and in the work that you do, has a horrible effect on the human being. What prompted the study though? What, what brought what brought this along?
1: Ah, that's a, a wonderful question. Actually, so, so a number of things really kind of served as the impetus for the study. I, I think one thing is precisely what you, you've mentioned, right? So there's been a, a lot of discussion and uh, ongoing concern about uh, methamphetamine and related psych, uh, psychostimulant use in Canada, uh, particularly around the, the increased use. And there's been a lack of high-quality data um, on this particular topic. And as a result, uh, the the federal government, so via the Canadian Institutes of Health Research, uh, put out a special uh, operating grant opportunity to uh, to fund research on this particular topic. And as a result, um, we uh, we put forward our particular study looking at the use of amphetamines here in Ontario. And uh, and we're successful in in being funded and we're fortunate enough to carry out this, uh, this research.
0: Talking to Dr. James Crispel, he's the lead author of the study and a postdoctoral research fellow in pharmaceutical science at the University of British Columbia. I believe Dr. Paxton is, uh, Paxton Bach is on with us as well, a clinical assistant professor, Department of Medicine at the University of British Columbia. Uh, Dr. Bach, you're there as well, yeah? I am, yes. Thanks, so. John. Okay, great. Thank you both for being, us, being with us tonight. Uh, you know, crystal methamphetamine. The, this the, the use of crystal meth and the use of amphetamines is it on the same kind of rise on the same kind of trajectory as the uh, opioid crisis, or is it you know sort of in the in its, in its midstream of becoming a much bigger problem, or is it already a huge problem? Dr. Brock,
2: I'm sure I'm happy to speak to that. Yeah, it, I mean, I think that it's it's a it's an enormous problem, and it's it's not something that's isolated. Um, from from the overdose crisis and, and from fentanyl, um, um, the rising um, rates of amphetamines have even been described by some as the fourth wave of our overdose crisis. Um, in in British Columbia, for instance, um, up to fifty percent of the overdose deaths here involve methamphetamine in addition to fentanyl. So it's very much intertwined with the overdose epidemic and with the, with with the the rising ROM um, rates of fentanyl that we're seeing, and I think that that is illustrated in this study not only because of the the, the huge rise in amphetamine related hospitalizations that we that was was found, but also in the in the significant number of those that also involved opioids.
0: It's interesting because there was a study done here in Ontario not long ago where the um, the um, coroner did some uh, investigation into some of the opioid deaths and there were amphetamines um, and, and um, benzodiazepines in the bloodstream as well. So um, it, there seems to be a mix and match thing. How, how much of an increase are hospitals actually seeing um, according to this study? Uh, I'll, I'll show that to Dr. Crispo.
1: Yeah, that, that's an excellent question. Um, so for our particular study, we used uh, diagnosis data in, in Ontario between 2003 and 2020. And what we observed, so over that entire period, uh, was about a 15-fold increase in the number of key individuals visiting the emergency department for an amphetamine-related diagnosis. Uh, so that was certainly quite shocking to us. Um, and just a couple of additional statistics around that. So we actually did two things. So one is we followed the trends over that time, as I say, about a 15-fold increase over the entire period. When we break that down to about uh, 2015 through to 2020, we're seeing about a 200% increase in amphetamine-related visits to the emergency department during that time. And then subsequently, what we also did is we assembled a cohort of individuals that we followed uh, between 2019 and midway through 2020. And what we did is we looked at individuals who presented to the emergency department for an amphetamine-related reason. And we then followed them prospectively for six months to determine whether they came back to the emergency department. And we wanted to better understand what were factors that were driving, in part, those uh, representations to the eMERGE. Uh, What we can say, just about some demographics, uh, so nearly three-quarters or 74% of our population was under the age of 40. So this is an incredibly young population. The the mean age or the average age was 34 years. Uh, The population was also predominantly male, so 68% of individuals who presented to the emergency department for amphetamine-related reasons were male. Um, And then, unfortunately, what we saw is once individuals did present to the emergency department, uh, three-quarters of them, or 75% of them, returned uh, to the emerge within six months for any reason. And 22% of individuals returned to the emergency department within six months for amphetamine-related reasons. So these are certainly concerning statistics, um, not only because of the health implications, but also because of the health resource
0: implications. Um, Dr. Bach, um, I want to ask you, how, are, how do they present in the ER uh, symptoms? So
2: the, there's a whole variety of, of presentations that, 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 um, that this study captures, but certainly one of the more common ones that's seen here is amphetamine-induced psychosis, mm-hmm. which is, is a temporary psychosis, uh, a temporary um, um, kind of separation from, from reality that is, is a really, uh, unfortunately, common presentation um, related to amphetamine use. And it's really, it's really frightening for individuals who will see that experience, um, and it's really challenging to manage because um, um, the, the burden um, that we're seeing in our emergency rooms, I work at St. Paul's Hospital in Vancouver, is just overwhelming the number of people who are, who are now coming in with this presentation and it becomes, becomes an enormous challenge um, for us to deal with and an enormous burden on our healthcare system
0: yeah no kidding, not to mention the the, the just the unnecessary deaths uh, and I'm not sure this is something you know Dr. Crispo, I'm going to ask you this question is this is something that that safe and like this I don't believe this is a something that a safe injection site or something like that will eliminate or 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 ease the the the, the um, I guess the damage or the destruction from is that a right thought or is it similar to the opioid crisis?
1: Yeah, so so a, a really great question. Um, when it comes to, you know, tackling or mitigating the risks and the harms that we're seeing with respect to amphetamines and other psychostimulants, um, you know, really there's not a single uh, magic solution to this. So if we're talking about harm reduction, whether that's safe injection sites or other interventions, uh, that's really going to play a very key component in uh, improving the health of individuals and hopefully um, reducing presentations to the emergency department for amphetamine-related harms. Um, now, is that the only thing? No, absolutely not. Uh, part of the research or the broader research program that funded you know, our work and the work of others across the country, there's some really key themes that came out of that in terms of you know, what, 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 where we should be going in terms of uh, mitigating these risks, And and what that might actually look like. And one key thing or one key theme that came up was, you know, upstream investment. So investment in the determinants of health and the social determinants of health. So uh, and and one of those things was, you know, things like uh, housing, access to primary care, other social services. Uh, So those are really key, but also the downstream pieces in terms of um, harm reduction are also critically important as well. So I don't know that a single, or I think it's fair to say that not a single approach is going to solve this, uh, but it's going to take interventions at multiple levels to, to ultimately be effective.
0: Uh, Dr. Bach, I'm um, going to ask you a question here. In terms of um, remedies, so for someone who's got an opioid issue, an overdose, they use naloxone. Uh, they can be on suboxone for long-term care or, or uh, to help uh, keep them alive, so to speak, and or, or methadone, same thing. Um, is, there, is there an intervening medication that can be used to help someone who's dealing with uh, methamphetamine or uh, amphetamine-type you know, uh, uh, misuse?
2: Yeah, I mean, that's another great question. Um, The short answer is, um, you know, in well, certainly in the context of the overdose crisis, a lot of attention is being paid to opioids for very good reason because they're causing so much death. Um, but as I mentioned, um, uh, there there are many other substances that are playing a role and, and stimulants are, are are very key and, and they don't receive as much attention as opioids do. Um, um, and are really under research as far as, as far as treatment goes. We don't have any single medications that are particularly effective treatments for stimulant use disorder for people who use stimulants like crystal meth. Um, And so it really goes to to what Dr. Crystal was was discussing is that what we really need is is first and foremost is, is, is more research into this area. Um, more research into into uh, into developing evidence-based effective treatments for um, those who use um, methamphetamine, but also into developing that continuum of care that he's speaking to, which includes um, harm reduction efforts, which includes um, treatment efforts, and which includes investment into upstream drivers of, of stimulant use, such as things like poverty and homelessness and mental health issues. <laughs>
0: Uh, talking with uh, two experts here this evening, Dr. James Crispo. He's the lead author in, of the study that we're talking about, postdoctoral research fellow in pharmaceutical sciences at the University of British Columbia. Also joined by Dr. Paxton Bach, clinical assistant professor, Department of Medicine at the University of British Columbia. Gentlemen, thank you for sticking with us. Uh, we're talking about the um, damage being done by um, methamphetamines and um, related drugs that are, you know, building up in the ER, causing a lot of difficulty for those being treated in the ER, um, and a lot of a lot of danger and difficulty for those uh, in on the staff if they're finding a lot of stress related to, to these types of treatments. Listen to uh, a woman describe what her feeling is like, what the high is like on methamphetamine. She's an unnamed woman, but uh, listen to this clip. I took a hit and for the next 24 hours i was just up i remember a few days later i was recovering and i remember going to him and i told i asked him I, I was like what was that that we smoked the other night and he said it was meth but that that high was so addicting that i didn't care and i said can we get more and he said yes so, uh, Dr. Crispo, uh, first, uh, let me ask you, un- Unlike, is, 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 a diff- is this a different high than the uh, crack cocaine type high that doesn't last as long? I mean, people talk about a meth high that lasts for days. Um, is that the problem? The problem is that it just gets you up and doesn't let you down? Uh,
1: so so unfortunately um, I can't speak to the particular characteristics of, of the type of high given that kind of I, I work more with the uh, the data and I'm not necessarily on the front lines but uh, gotcha. Dr. Bach certainly might be able to comment in terms of what he sees uh, in practice.
0: Dr. Bach, um, is this similar to crack cocaine in terms of its use and longevity or is crystal meth get a hold of you much different? i uh, my feeling is that probably more so what's what, what's your finding? <laughs>
2: So, so, I can speak to that as a as a clinician, as an addiction medicine um, um, physician at, at St. Paul's. Is, you know, it, I would say they they do they work in similar ways in terms of in terms of the way that they act on the brain. But certainly, um, amphetamines like crystal meth are, are are tend to be much more powerful or more potent than than, than cocaine. Um, mm-hmm. And and as as your um, clip uh, illustrated, there they last much longer. Cocaine is, is actually quite quite short in its function, but, but meth can last many, many hours. Um, so, so it's really a much more extended uh, experience.
0: Dr. Crispo, um, I'm going to ask you a question. Is, is this, you think that the use of this is becoming more, um, problematic because it's just a cheap way to get high compared to others or is it more accessible? What does your study find?
1: So we haven't looked necessarily at kind of the reasons for, um, the upstream or the underlying reasons in terms of the, the increased reason for presenting to the emergency department. But um, yeah, certainly it's, you know, if we were to speculate or kind of look at anecdotally what's been reported in by others, uh, certainly price has a factor. Uh, we, cert- we also know that uh, the pandemic has not helped things. In fact, it's you know, likely contributed to increased use. And this has been attributed in or anecdotally to things like border closures and uh, disruption of the supply chain of other drugs, potentially opioids uh, or other substances as well. So I think, again, it's not a single answer. It's not necessarily just price. Price certainly may be a factor, but I also think it's things like supply chain as well as uh, accessibility.
0: Dr. Crispo, another question for you. Is, is this... Um, is this, why is this particular situation these meth-related ER visits? Why why are they so time you know so expensive in terms of times t- time of care and, and, and what what makes them specifically problematic?
1: Uh, I, I think simply the fact that one there are really great indication that there are individuals in our society um, that are I'll use the word suffering or Uh, dealing with substance use disorder and arguably uh, these individuals could be living a much healthier and arguably better quality of life. So uh, that's the first and really foremost reason as to why this is a problem. It also suggests that there are um, other dysfunctions kind of at the societal level in terms of maybe a lack of support uh, that are leading to this uh, problematic substance use, which is ultimately resulting in individuals presenting to the emergency department Uh, in terms of, you know, resources in an emergency department, Um, if we can avoid these visits, we can free up staff resources to treat kind of other uh, indications and presentations to the emergency department. And it's well known that across the country, we are uh, facing uh, physicians shortages, particularly in primary care. And that there are considerable wait times to accessing both emergency department services as well as specialty services. So anything that we can do to better provide care to avoid arguably unnecessary presentations to the emergency department. I think that's certainly a win for, uh, for everybody, including health systems.
0: Yeah, sounds like it. Dr. Bach, is this an Ontario-only thing? Or are you finding this problem, uh, you know, the study's in Ontario, but uh, it's, apparently it's coming from the West to us or from us to the West? Is this a problem that seems to be spreading across the country? Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> it,
2: it's it's drug use patterns are, are, are quite different depending on where you look in, in North America but this is a North American issue this is not this is not east or west um, we have um, as Dr. Crystal mentioned earlier this is the, the strongest data we have yet in Canada showing this increased use and these increased harms we do have some data from from BC and from Manitoba as well um, but there's plenty of data in the US um, showing very similar um, types of findings increasing hospitalizations increasing healthcare costs increasing consequences related to amphetamine use um, and as I mentioned uh, its role in the overdose crisis can't be overstated. Um, up to fifty percent of deaths in, in in my province do involve the use of crystal meth in addition to fentanyl. So this is a this is a, a huge problem across North America and one that continues to get worse. Uh,
0: Dr. Chris, thank you, Dr. Bach, Dr. Crispo. Um, what's the hope of this study? Where is it going? What's what's the intended uh, findings? Do you have findings and conclusions and advice to give to others? Uh, recommendations, if you will.
1: Yeah, if, if we kind of take the 30,000-foot uh, the approach, um, the broad strokes or the hopes here are that, one, people are paying attention. So this is really a concern, the increasing rates of amphetamine-related uh, visits to the emergency department. Um, and so the hopes are that, one, uh, there's increased public investment into research. As I've mentioned, as Dr. Bach has mentioned, there's really a lack of high-quality research on this topic, particularly in Canada. Uh, the other is that, you know, or increasing investment in evidence-based treatments uh, for methamphetamine use disorder. Uh, so that's certainly essential. And, and another key message or really hope here is that there are uh, additional investments in primary care and the recruitment of reten- and retention of primary care practitioners. We know that as of 2019, uh, within Canada, we are short approximately 5 million uh, family physicians, or rather, sorry, um, about 5 million Canadians did not have access to a family doctor. Um, and we need to really solve that gap because we found that individuals who presented to the emergency department who had a family doctor were actually 23% less likely to represent within six months for any reason or, thir- or, or, or 33% less likely to represent for amphetamine-related reasons. So I think it's going to take uh, investment across you know these broad areas, including research and, uh, and primary care.
0: I'm talking to Dr. James Crispo. He's the lead author of the study and the postdoctoral research fellow in pharmaceutical sciences at the University of British Columbia. Joined as well with Dr. Paxton Bach. He's the clinical assistant professor, Department of Medicine at the University of British Columbia. Thank you both for being with us tonight and being at your best, shedding a light on something that we need to pay attention to if we're going to try to keep more people alive that are suffering on the streets and have substance use disorders and mental health issues around that. And it's just, you know, and these studies hopefully are going to lead us to a place, you know, that uh, will uh, help us come up with societal changes and systemic changes that will, you know, help mitigate these kinds of things in the future and free up some time in the uh, ER for people that are coming in for uh, other unrelated type activities or so other injuries, if you will. So um, I just think it's really important when people study this kind of stuff that we recognize that there's a purpose. And the purpose is that it's intended to help others. Um, uh, through the understanding of the information so that we get to a place where you know this doesn't become a, a real big thing if it's not a big enough thing right now people are dying so it's big enough for me but if we get on top of it and kind of can predict where it's going I think it would make a big difference in terms of uh, keeping more people alive